Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kipler. And this is episode 45 in our series for 2016. And today's date is the 9th of December. And Leon, this week we're talking about strategic design. That's right. We're having a chat with RMIT Professor Gerda Gemser and RMIT uh, Associate Professor Ingo Carpen. And uh, we're going to talk to them about a book they've written edited on strategic design which is all about the way to design not just physical things but the way companies operate yeah designing policy and this sort of thing I guess right and and, it's, uh, and they've, got, they've got a number of examples of how it's used so uh, that's going to be fascinating yep and then we've got Saul Eslake that's right he's going to be talking to us all about how the markets have behaved this year mm, erratically possibly that's right yeah a lot of knee-jerk I think that's right and now let's listen to RMIT professors I go to Gemser and Ingo Carpen. Go to Gemser, tell us what strategic design is. Yes, so there is no one uniform definition for this um, field of study because it's also uh, only just emerging. Uh, but we have made our own definition based on um, what we feel strategic design is. And uh, we say it's the use of design principles and practices to guide strategy development and implementation towards innovative outcomes that benefit not only organizations, but also people. How does that work? What would design companies be doing? So particularly it's about design traditionally was often used in a more operational fashion. So design, designers, design thinkers, they got briefed to develop certain products or certain services and they executed those briefs. So the difference with normal or traditional design and strategic design is that strategic design is all about designers that co-develop strategy. So it's about thinking about those briefs and co-creating those briefs to see whether the problems that are being offered by organizations to solve are really problems that need to be solved. Maybe there are other problems which are much uh, more pressing or actually would help organizations much more to gain more competitiveness. So it's about actually talking with organizational leaders on a strategic level and helping them to co-define and co solve problems. So that would put the design company at the forefront of the companies, of the businesses' uh, strategic issues, wouldn't it? Yes, correct. And they would have to actually work with the company in developing their strategy. Yeah, and it's about all about co-creation. We're not saying that designers will replace strategists. Um, It's about helping uh, co-creating together with organizational leaders uh, strategy. Well, can you give me an example, Ingo, of of how design can help a strategy? Strategic design is being implemented by a whole range of different companies. Uh, That includes not-for-profit organizations, but it also includes big leading international companies such as IBM, Coca-Cola, that are really pushing the boundaries of implementing strategic design. So on the one hand, the companies like a Global Ideas Forum, which is a not-for-profit organization that seeks to solve uh, global health issues, Uh, uses design thinking or strategic design uh, to develop um, health solutions at a global level, at a very complex level. But at the same time, then there are companies, as I mentioned, like IBM or Coca-Cola, that really use strategic design to influence uh, the entire setup of the organization, the way they organize themselves, the way they organize their problem solving, really in order to push the boundaries for, for innovation, strategic innovation, social innovation, 
and uh, help the organization to actually become a better player in the industry for the benefit of the organization, but also for the benefit of the multiple stakeholders of the organization. Can you give an example of the way a design would help a company's strategy? Mm -hmm. If we take, for instance, a classic uh, strategy approach, it's a pretty linear approach, uh, going out, trying to understand the market, coming back, formulating strategy and implementing it. One of the key differences with strategic design is that the organizations have a more iterative approach. It's a more going back and forth. So we might go into the market, try to contextually understand the dynamics of the market, try to get a deep feel, a deep understanding of, of what is going on. Coming back to the drawing board, asking ourselves, um, you know, what are these key issues? How might we address these key issues? What if certain scenarios hold and start developing um, solutions? But then going back again um, in terms of trying to verify the assumptions that are being part of those solutions upon which we develop the innovations. So it's much more iterative than a classic strategy-making approach. It's much more flexible than a classic strategy-making approach, which really is much more linear. And specifically, what would a design do? How would a design, say, help a company like, say, KLM mm -hmm. is one example of a company that uses uh, strategic design. Can you tell me how design has helped KLM? Yeah, so you have to think about design in, in as a way of working, right? We are not talking about design in terms of uh, aesthetics, for example. It's about design, designerly ways of working. Um, and in the case of KLM, how it has been applied is that how designers go about is, uh, as Ingo just said, is very iterative. It is is going back and forth. It's it's visualizing, prototyping. But they also have certain other types of practices, such as in this case, in the case of KLM, envisioning was a very important practice. So designers look towards where society is heading. Right? Organizations often have this short-term view. Um, also by pressure of competitiveness. But designers look at um, developments in society, um, uh, how are people going to behave in the, in, in the, in the mid and long-term future, and how should an organization actually adapt towards those cultural, economic type of developments. So in this case, the, the way of working of designers was to envision the future to see how people are going to behave and translate that in a way that was useful for KLM to solve their problem. So it was about, um, in this specific case, it was about the staff within a, in a plane and uh, how they should behave. And they kind of provided advice based on um, where society was heading towards, right? So they have this much more broader view than if you would just solve a question, right? And, and directly and just look at, the now. When you say design, you're not necessarily talking about the physical layout, but also the way people in the company interact with customers. Correct. So it's it's indeed it's not you should not see it as indeed often it's seen as an outcome and about physical things, but it's about the way designers or design thinkers go about in solving problems. So it's about their techniques, their tools their practices, that for us is, is characterizing strategic design. So ethics becomes into it and, and this sort of the ethical behavior of a company, um, how a board operates, its approach to its customers, its approach to government, if you like. Absolutely. 
And uh, that highlights actually another interesting point about strategic design, because in addition to the type of um, practices that we try and implement as strategic designers throughout an organization, it is as much about having a design philosophy or a design-driven mindset at organizational level, um, because as a, as a strategic design company or company that is designerly or led by design, um, we operate on principles such as collaboration. Rather than taking a classic approach where the top-level management might develop a strategy and really push it downwards, it's much more about um, actually co-developing and collaborating with the broader stakeholder community in order to develop strategic solutions that would fit these different stakeholders. And so it, it requires a different mindset, a more collaborative mindset, where different opinions are really appreciated and try to be integrated into solutions that fit these different stakeholders uh, as much as possible. And of course, at the same time, the organizations needs to consider, you know, viability and feasibility considerations. Um, but primarily the starting point is really uh, the benefit of these different stakeholders and developing solutions with the different stakeholders. And then at the same time, factoring in feasibility and viability. So if the goal of the company is business success, then does the idea of strategic design and your book cover the possible differences between, say, Australia dealing with an Asian company or an Asian country? The, the ethical and, and other approaches of, say, uh, Asia would be different from a Western country. In certain ways, it might be well different. Uh, but there might also be differences even among Western companies, not just between Western and Asian or uh, I don't want to make a distinction between like regional areas because there might be even distinctions among companies from a specific area. Um, but in our book, we specify six uh, design principles or strategic design principles. And one of those design principles uh, relates to the fact that strategic design is trying to be holistic as well and tries to understand and factor in uh, ripple effects or effects that span across a variety of stakeholders. And again, if you mention ethics or social responsibility, strategic design really can help make us another leap towards more socially responsible solutions because right from the beginning, it factors in a whole variety of different stakeholder uh, context and stakeholder needs and is a much more inclusive and collaborative approach towards de developing solutions that actually fit these different stakeholders. So it would be an outward and also an internal process wouldn't it absolutely for me again the strategic design actually has a, a great benefit that it helps to engage customers and key stakeholders which also include employees at the end of the day um, you know if we come up with great innovative solutions these need to be embraced by both our employees and our customers so strategic design through its collaborative approach tries to engage employees uh, throughout the entire process as much as customers and in doing so uh, have a much more inclusive and uh, an approach that at the end of the day works both to the inside by engaging employees and other potentially internal stakeholders as much as it works to the external by bringing in and engaging customers and other stakeholders. Yeah, and, and so uh, related to that is that we argue that if you want to do good strategic design, um, what you should take into account is not only desirability, which is that you make something that is desirable by the, the consumer or the customer, but as Ingo said, you also need to into account whether it's feasible, so whether it can be made by the organization, right? Whether they have the resources and capabilities to do so, and whether it's uh, a viable, so whether for the organization, the organization can actually 
reach its goals by by doing that. And that could be goals in terms of profits, but it could also be non non uh, profit goals, such as you know wanting to have society to have a certain attitude. Right. So it's about strategic design is, is actually taking into account all those aspects of desirability, viability, feasibility and working together with all different kinds of stakeholders to realize that. There's one other important uh, aspect of strategic design. I work a lot with clients and uh, a common thing is that when I, when I um, start working with an organization, they often have already a predefined assumption of what their problem is or what the problem should be. And one of the important aspects of strategic design is actually going back and challenging the initial organizational assumptions about what the problem is and start questioning that, doing some research, really contextually going deep and then redefining the problem uh, rather than start innovating right from the beginning, which is what unfortunately many companies do. And uh, your book, Strategic Design, has already been released in Europe and yes. it's, it's uh, already had a good uptake, I take it. And uh, it's being released here on December the 8th. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We have an official launch on the 8th of, uh, of uh, December. Um, we were just notified that already in Europe it has been on the market since the end of October. It has already been selling nearly a thousand copies, which is very good, I think, for an academic, for a book. That's fantastic. Look, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Well, the book has done well in Europe and is being launched uh... on Thursday, December the 8th. It's going to be very, very successful, I would imagine. And mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in it. Yes, indeed. Now, Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, we've had major shifts in markets this year with uh, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and more recently with the um, resignation of Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi following the uh, failed referendum. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, I think there are a couple of key takeaways from the way markets have behaved over the course of 2016. One is that politics matter. And another is that politics has been very difficult for financial markets to predict and interpret. Now, we can dig into that a little more deeply. Markets do, of course, respond to changes in government policy. And for much of the last 30 or so years, that is, since the end of the Cold War in particular, but arguably going back to the early 1980s, government policymaking in most of the world's major economies has fallen into a fairly predictable framework with central banks seeking to keep inflation low and stable and governments generally preferring market-oriented means of promoting growth in economic activity, employment and trade. Some of the credibility of those modes of operating by central banks and governments were dealt a fairly significant blow by the global financial crisis, which has been seen by many and not without justice as representing a failure of so-called elite opinion as epitomized by central banks, treasuries and international economic agencies such as the IMF and the OECD. But rightly or wrongly, 
around the world, the stress that was experienced by large proportions of the advanced world's populations are seen as representing a collective failure on the part of those who've been running the global economy over the previous 25 or so years and of the beliefs some would call it ideology that have underpinned their decision-making framework. Over the period since the financial crisis, we've seen periodic outbreaks of public anger at the way in which events have unfolded during and beyond the financial crisis. And they've crystallized this year, particularly in the form of the vote in the UK at the end of June to leave the European Union. And more recently, the election of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States. These were things that had not been anticipated by financial markets, partly because they hadn't been predicted by the opinion polls that financial markets and others tend to look to when they're trying to anticipate how political events play out. Both of these represent significant material breaks with the model or modus operandi that politics had followed in most countries since at least the end of the Cold War. And as a result, financial markets having neither anticipated these political developments nor really understood the reasons for them or their consequences have been quite volatile since. As far as the equity markets are concerned, the post-US election belief appears to be that incoming President Trump will be a uh, 21st century version of Ronald Reagan, insofar as one can tell, seeking to promote faster growth in the US economy and higher levels in employment through, for the most part, a combination of tax cuts and increased government spending, with little regard for the consequences of all of that for the budget deficit. Over in Europe, people are still trying to make sense of what could happen as Britain prepares for and ultimately seeks to leave the European Union. There's a contrast to some extent with the outcome of the Italian referendum at the beginning of December because the no vote had been foreshadowed by opinion polls in the weeks leading up to the referendum. And so the result itself wasn't really that much of a surprise to financial markets. But there are certainly some important political milestones in 2017 that markets will inevitably be wary of. And they include, of course, the two rounds of voting in the French presidential election, which could potentially see Marine Le Pen installed as president of France. And she's promised to have a Frexit referendum on France's future within the European Union. Before that, in March, the Netherlands goes to the polls and Markets will be wondering whether Geert Wilders will become the leader of the biggest party in parliament, which would in turn under Dutch parliamentary procedure entitle him to seek the office of prime minister. And he's promised a referendum on Netherlands continuing involvement in the European Union. So there are plenty of possibilities for the kind of political shocks we saw during 2016 to be repeated in 2017. And if the outcomes are not what markets anticipate, then we can expect some more volatility. And of course, there's always the election of Angela Merkel as well. 
That's true. That election, the German parliamentary elections are due sometime between August and November, most likely if president is any guide in September. And in Germany, of course, we've seen the right-wing alternative for Deutschland party do well in state elections. And you'd have to expect that they will get enough votes at the federal election to gain representation in the Bundestag. In Germany, however, parliamentary politics have played out a little differently in the sense that there has been a willingness on the part of the two major parties, the Christian Democrats led by Angela Merkel and the opposition Social Democrats to work together in a so-called government of national unity. And even if the alternative for Deutschland party were to get, say, 25% of the vote, which in itself would be a shock, they still would be unlikely to form a government or take over the reins of power in the way that, for example, Donald Trump is about to in the United States, or Marine Le Pen would if she wins the second round of voting in the French presidential election in May. So uh, I think that's probably less of a risk at the moment to financial markets and indeed to the established political order than some of the other elections that will be held in Europe in the first half of next year. But, I mean, it's interesting that the markets have responded accordingly to Brexit and they've responded accordingly to the election of Donald Trump and they, the market sees the election of Donald Trump as a positive. And the market has uh, seems to have priced in the no vote in, in Italy. But uh, things can change, can't it? Because uh, Donald Trump's policies will increase the US deficit uh, and uh, it will increase inflation. There's a whole lot of issues that will flow from that, and that will affect markets as well, surely. Yes, it will. And markets are working on a set of assumptions about what Donald Trump intends to do and the extent to which the US political system will allow him to do it, as well as on the results of what those policies might turn out to be. And of course, any number of those assumptions, or indeed all of them, could turn out to be wrong. Uh, I, for example, think, as I discussed the last time we were speaking together, that in many respects, the US economic situation differs from the situation that Ronald Reagan confronted uh, in the 1980s. In particular, Donald Trump starting from public debt of 75% of US GDP, whereas Ronald Reagan began running budget deficits from a position where US public debt was 25% of GDP. Donald Trump starting from a position where US unemployment is now at 4.6% as of November, compared with in excess of over 10% when Ronald Reagan's deficit policies really started to come into effect. And that means that there's far less spare capacity in the US economy today than there was back then. Moreover, the US working age populations now only growing at 0.2 of a percent per annum compared with close to 1% per annum during Ronald Reagan's time. So the concerns about higher inflation or a larger current account deficit 
could emerge more quickly and more forcefully over the next four years than they did during the first term of the Reagan administration. And if that turns out to be right, then equity and other markets may well take a very different view of uh, the impact of Donald Trump's policies than they are at the moment. And it's perhaps worth noting that while the equity market has indeed been cheered by what it thinks Donald Trump's going to do and what the effects of that might be, the bond market it's taken a very different view. We've seen quite a significant sell-off in bond markets led by the United States, but spreading around the world, bond prices have fallen quite a bit because the bond market anticipates that Mr. Trump's policies will lead to not only bigger budget deficits, but to higher inflation. Now, some increase in inflation from the present record low levels, especially in those countries where inflation's actually been negative, like some European countries in Japan, uh, that's probably to be welcomed. But you can have too much of a good thing and bond markets certainly wouldn't welcome a return to inflation rates of, say, 4 to 5%, and their likely reaction to it wouldn't go down well with the equity markets either. Which is very much a warning signal to markets looking forward. Yes, it is. Um, one needs to be careful about crude generalizations. But by and large, over the last 15 years, the bond market has proved itself more adept at picking major turning points in economic trends than the equity market. And so while they could be wrong, I'd certainly be paying careful attention to how the bond market is reading the economic tea leaves over the course of 2017. And I'd probably be more inclined to take my cue from their reactions than I would from the equity markets. So Les Lake, it's been wonderful talking to you again and wishing you all the best over the Christmas break. And the same to you, Leon, and to all those who listen to these podcasts and uh, look forward to talking with you again in 2017. So how do you read that, Leon? As he says, it's all going to be shaped by politics over the next year or so, and that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, particularly for the Libs, because uh, it's quite clear that Tony Abbott is still uh, leading a kind of a rump, a right-wing rump in there. That's right. He's upset with Turnbull over the, the Green Army. It's uh, a sign of it. Absolutely. So now, the news. Well, Gary, uh, Matty O'Reilly's heavy referendum defeat, defeat is a second time this year a questionable decision by a Prime Minister holder of her referendum has plunged the continent into political and financial turmoil. Just like Britain's David Cameron after the shock Brexit vote, Italy's Renzin chose to resign rather than clean up his own mess. And the result, Gary, is a third domino crashing into the Western political establishment after Brexit and Donald Trump shocked US election victory. The Italian situation is arguably the least dramatic of the three, but it still has serious implications. First, it puts an end to the important political and economic reforms begun by Renzi when he assumed power in 2014, and the fresh-faced PM had vowed to drag Italy out of the swamp, as he put it, by building a strong centre-left majority, but his approval ratings fell away and any chance of meaningful structural reform is gone for the time being. Secondly, it threatens plans to rescue Italy's embattled banking sector at a time when as many as eight lenders are believed to need some form of external assistance. One bank in particular, the Benville Banca Monte del Pachi de Siena, requires at least €5 billion Euro in fresh capital, and there are legitimate fears that a period of prolonged political uncertainty will send investors running for the exit. And third, and this is important, the result threatens the fragile unity of a European Union already struggling to cope with an immigration crisis. 
terrorism and stubbornly low levels of economic growth. Now, with an early election, a possibility for the caretaker government that's likely to succeed, Renzi, the result represents a guilt-edge opportunity for the five-star movement, a populist anti-establishment party, which has previously said it's prepared to call a referendum on Italy's membership of the euro. So that's a space to watch, Gary. Indeed, and it will be the 66th Italian government in the past 70 years. That's right, since the Second World War. That's right. Yeah, Indeed. That's right. Now, um, now, U.S. President-elect Donald Trump says he'll impose punitive taxes on U.S. firms that move manufacturing overseas. Trump promised a 35% tax on products sold in the U.S. by any business that fired American workers and built a factory elsewhere. And he said firms should be forewarned prior to making a very expensive mistake. And Trump has promised to help blue-collar workers as well as reduce taxes and regulations on businesses. But tax specialists say this is legally dubious and uh, it's likely to meet GOP resistance in the Congress. Yeah, it looks more like more posturing to the gallery from Trump. He, he was uh, named Time Man of the Year this year. That's right. That's right. Which yeah. is not indeed, the, indeed. Yeah, not that that was a recommendation by Time, rather the opposite. No, well, uh, Time Man of the Year, along with, uh, I mean, the other ones who, who've held that uh, position have been Hitler and Stalin. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> true. Yeah. Now, um, Australia's economy shrank 0.5% in the September quarter, well below pessimistic analyst forecast. The annual growth of rate, uh, the annual rate of growth came in at an anemic one. 0.8%, which is well below expectations, Gary. And I might add that first time it's dropped below 2% since the global financial crisis. So it's the worst in eight years. Economists were generally expecting a slight fall of GDP with a typical forecast of a minus 0.1% and economic growth of 2.2% over the year. Instead, it's 1.8%, and that's not good. You know, bits of the uh, economy, like the construction industry, aren't very good either. Well, the construction industry did most of the damage, Gary. It, it was it was pretty bad. Probably get worse too. And, and, and of course, the slowdown is in stark contrast with uh, Treasury estimating the economy's growth potential at 2.75 percent, and the Reserve Bank of Australia's estimates either matching or exceeding that. Yeah, Morrison's got a job to do, hasn't he? I think so. I mean, that, that was uh, that was really good. It, it, was, it was quite it was quite amazing. Uh, listening to him yesterday, talking to reporters about it, what's what's ahead. Uh, Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen blamed it on the government's what he called chaos and dysfunction. He said. Is a special feat for a government to oversee the Australian economy going backwards without being able to appoint serious temporary one-off factors like a global financial crisis, extreme weather event like Cyclone Yassi. Politics again. That's right. Now, um, that, the, the construction industry continued to contract in November. The Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Australian Performance of Construction Index came in at 46.6 points in the month. Any number below 50 indicates contraction and less business coming in. And while there was an increase of 0.7 points from October, indicating a slightly lower, lower rate of decline from September. It was only due to less pronounced reductions in new orders and deliveries from suppliers. The numbers showed activity falling at a steeper rate while employment returned to contraction, with business attributing this to sluggish demand, and all sectors of the construction industry contracted. Yeah, and they reckon 10,000 Chinese who bought apartments off the plan are now seriously underwater. That's right, indeed. Gary, the Reserve Bank of Australia surprised no one by keeping rates on hold, the record low of 1.5%, and economists had expected the RBA would be keeping rates steady at its meeting, and its last meeting for the year. At this stage, the market is pricing a 12% chance 
the RBA will raise rates in 2017, and more economists say that will be a 2018 story. Now, uh, in, in a piece of good news for the government and retailers, Australian Consumer Confidence has soared 2.8% in the lead up to Christmas, and that puts the ANZ Royal Mortgage Consumer Confidence Index at its highest level in 10 weeks. The economy goes down and the consumers are, uh, are more optimistic. Well, yes, and that, that, that of course, happened. Um, of course, the uh, GDP numbers is all historic, and that's happened this week. Uh, that, that's actually quite telling. Now, job advertisements are rising, edging up 1.7% in November, and that follows a 1% rise in the previous month. And according to the ANZ Job Ad series, it's a good growth with annual growth in job ads accelerating to 6.1% up from 5.2% in October. Now, that number is significant given the recent softness in employment data. And the ANZ team of economists say that while the pace of improvement in the labour market has slowed, signs are pointing to a gradual recovery. Gradual being the word. That's right. That's right. Now, um, Gary, the government has abandoned its much-vaunted plan to set up a new banking tribunal. The turnaround came after an expert review found it was not necessary. Earlier this year, the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull flagged a low-cost tribunal which would arbitrate disputes within the financial sectors and the group customers, and the tribunal would have powers to make rulings and impose penalties on banks. And this was in response to calls by Brisbane Liberal MP Warren Edge and National Senator John Wacker-Williams for a new consumer-focused tribunal and all designed to neutralise Labor's pressure for a banking royal commission. However, an interim report from the government's review of dispute resolution in the financial services sector found there was no need for such a tribunal. And the review, led by Melbourne University commercial law professor Ian Ramsey, did not recommend any tribunal structure. And instead, it recommended a single industry ombudsman to cover financial credit service and a compensation scheme of last resort for consumers facing losses when companies go broke. And also recommended that the existing superannuation complaints tribunal transition to an industry ombudsman scheme to deal with superannuation disputes. And it was actually quite funny listening to uh, our financial services minister Kelly O'Dwyer on the uh, ABC Worldwide on the radio, she said uh, that was all fine because the government actually meant a small tea tribunal when it made the proposal back in October. <laughs> like a tea party in Boston. That's right. I, I just I burst out laughing when yeah. I heard that. Now, former Trump Prime Minister Tony Abbott has launched a scathing attack on the government following reports the Green Army, a key part of his climate change policy, is set to be scrapped. And the suggestion came on the same day that the government confirmed a review into Australia's climate change policy, which could a form of carbon price. Ministers uh, refused to confirm or deny whether the Green Army program, which was to employ 15,000 young people for conservation projects, would go in order to save $350 million. And Mr Rabbit said he was dismayed because the Green Army was good for conservation and for employment. Now, the government's going to be delivering its budget update, which is shipped to show ballooning debt and deficits, and while the $350 million will be considered a saving, the government last week pledged $100 million to land care. Now, the controversy erupted as the government announced it would consider a form of carbon price but insisted it would be nothing like the carbon tax they opposed when Labor was in power. And the government has since retreated on this and said it had no such intention to introduce a carbon price and that followed a bank bench revolt from figures including Cory Bernardi and former PM Tony Abbott. So again, the right wing of the Liberal Party is uh, stymied Malcolm Turnbull. That's right. No, it's, it's really it's really done it badly. Dairy processor Murray Goldburn has dropped plans for a new input formula supply partnership after changes to Chinese import regulations rendered the strategy unviable. Australia's biggest dairy processor announced on Monday that it and US-based infant formula maker Mead Johnson Nutrition had mutually agreed to abandon their supply agreement 
Agreement, which was unveiled nearly nine months ago. And the regulatory changes in China include restrictions on the number of baby product companies allowed to sell in China. And Murray Goldman's update to the market came as investors continued to sell down Tasmanian-based infant formula maker Bellamy's after it warned on Friday of a fall in revenue and tighter profitability because of worst expected sales in China. And Bellamy said the Chinese regulatory changes had triggered discounting by rivals that had temporarily hurt its sales. So not good for uh, the dairy industry in China. No, it's not. It's difficult to see why Chinese are doing it. Well, it's, I think it's to protect their own industry. Yeah, well, such as it is, it's not a very big industry, but... Uh... Now, uh, Gary, Origin Energy supplies surprised the market by announcing plans to sell off its $1.8 billion uh, conventional oil and gas assets and focus on its energy markets and LNG business, and Origin said its plans to list the business in 2017. The company said it would reduce its $9 billion of debt and reduce Origin's capital expenditure requirements. And Origin served on the announcement closed, uh, and, and, and closed quite strongly. The company's new chief executive, Frank Calabria, who took over the long-standing process from Grant King in October, said the divestment was a major step towards restoring the company's financial flexibility. Yeah, interesting, though, you know, whether Origin's getting into renewables. Good question. That's right. Well, they seem to be doing that. Mm, they do. Yeah. And finally, Gary, Hong Kong billionaire Li Ka-shing Ching Kong Infrastructure Holdings has made a $7.3 billion offer to buy Australian energy infrastructure company Duet. And Duet has told the market the offer is at uh, $3 a share, which is a 27.7 premium to Duet's Friday closing price of $2.35. The, the offer also has to be approved by the Foreign Investment Review Board. Now, Gary, this is significant because it indicates Li Ka-shing is still interested in acquiring Australian infrastructure assets after CKI's bid for New South Wales electricity grid Ausgrid was rejected in August by FIRB and the bid was blocked on national security grounds. Now, this is important this bid, I think, is important for Li Ka-shing because it diversifies his company beyond the United Kingdom, which generates a bulk of the profits for his company, CK Hutchinson. And the business needs to diversify following Britain's decision to break away from the European Union, which could undermine the economy. And US assets in Australia include the Dampier-Bunbury pipeline, West Australia. It also has a stake in electricity distributed in United Energy, gas distribution business, Multinet Gas, and pipelines business, DPB Development Group and Energy Development. It's difficult to see if the the FIRB approving this, it's a major infrastructure, isn't it? It's major infrastructure. It's a challenge for the FIRB, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we've got an interview with uh, Colin McCabe, who's the Director of Consulting and Training at Red Hat. Yep, very interesting. Yes, indeed, indeed. And that's it for this week. And tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you next week.